Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Please open in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're currently in a study in which we're studying through the pastoral epistles, which is the name which is given to a series of three epistles in the New Testament, three letters written by the Apostle Paul to young pastors, and those are Timothy and Titus. And so right now we're in the book of 1 Timothy. We like to study through books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're coming up now to the end of 1 Timothy. So please open there to 1 Timothy chapter 6, the last chapter of that book. Well, I just arrived home yesterday from Ukraine. I was there with Pastor Mike and two other leaders from our church, Sean Freed and Terry Haley, and we went there to lead a retreat for Ukrainian pastors and leaders and their families. So the goal was to give them some encouragement and to take care of their bodies, minds, and souls. So there were 160 people. We got funding for this, so the men, women, and children, they were able to come and at no cost to them and have a time of safety, but also a time of worship and prayer. There were opportunities for counseling as well. Pastor Mike and I taught Bible studies in the evenings. Sean and Terry helped out with ministering to the kids. It was a really rich time. By going to them, you know, what we wanted to show is that even though we live far away, because of Jesus, through him, we are family. And you know what family does? Family takes care of each other. Family uh, looks out for each other. Family loves each other. So for us who went, I have to tell you, it was, it was deeply impactful to see the faith of these people who are not only living through these very difficult circumstances, but they're working tirelessly to minister to others with the love of Jesus by meeting physical and spiritual needs. And so, you know, but everyone I talked to, they said something really interesting. They said that right now in, U- in Ukraine, what they're experiencing is what they would call a spiritual revival. They said people are coming to faith in Jesus. They're being baptized. Churches are active. People are serving. The way that people view the church has changed. The way that church there has responded to the humanitarian crisis has caused people to see the love of Christ that these Christians have. And there's an openness now to hear the message of hope through Jesus Christ. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, I'll just put it this way. Uh, Maybe you have at times experienced something like this yourself. There are some moments in life which cause you to get a real sense of clarity. Clarity about what it is that is really important, what really matters, and what your priorities ought to be. You know, maybe because of something you've experienced, maybe, maybe through the birth of a child or the loss of a loved one, maybe because of something you've learned. The effect, though, that those moments have on you, these kind of turning points, right, is that they put everything else into perspective. They cause you to reassess your priorities. And as a result, it causes you to think differently, act differently, live differently from that point forward. Again, these, we call these turning points. Well, in, here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul the Apostle, he wants us to see that the biggest turning point that a person can experience is when you come to really understand the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done to save you. When you understand that, when you begin to experience new life and redemption, it changes your perspective 
perspective on everything. It gives you a sense of clarity about everything else in your life. It motivates you to live in a whole new way. So the title of today's message is How the Gospel Transforms Your Everyday Life. And what we're going to see here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, is this, that what Jesus has done for us changes the way we work, it, change, it alters our priorities, and it gives us a new perspective on money and material things. So we're going to work through the text, and that'll be our guide that sums it up, and it'll be our guide as we work through the text. So I'll give you one more time, then we'll break it down and use it as our guide for studying the text. What Jesus has done for us changes the way we work, alters our priorities, and gives us a new perspective on money and material things. So the first part of that sentence, what Jesus has done for us. First Timothy chapter 6 begins with these words. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy, who had recently come to the city of Ephesus to a church, to pastor a church that at one time had been healthy and strong, but because of a lack of leadership, this church had become riddled with unhealthy practices and false teaching. And Timothy's job there in Ephesus was to right the ship. It was to fix these problems in order to save this church and bring it back to health. And so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to encourage him in his calling as a pastor, to instruct him about how to lead the church and how to handle this difficult situation that he's been tasked with. So as he begins now, this final chapter of the letter, Paul mentions to Timothy, did you notice again, the importance of guarding and protecting what Paul calls the teaching. The teaching. What is the teaching he's referring to? The teaching he's referring to here is the true message of the gospel. Throughout this letter, what you'll notice if you read the whole thing is that Paul has been seeking to clarify what the true message of the gospel is. And here's why. Because there were those false teachers in the church who were teaching things that were not the gospel. Now, for example, in chapter 1, Paul mentions that these false teachers were teaching that when a person, that the way a person is saved and made right with God, they were teaching that it's by keeping the Ten Commandments. They were also teaching other weird things like genealogies and myths and superstitions that weren't even in the Bible. And so throughout this letter, Paul has been seeking to clarify what is the true message of the gospel. And in chapter 1, here, here's what Paul said. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It isn't we who save ourselves by being good enough people, but it's Jesus who came to save sinners like you and me. And how did he do it? Well, he tells us in chapter 2. The way Jesus did it is that he gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus gave his life in order to pay the price to redeem us from the curse of sin and death, and from the judgment that we deserved for the wrong things we've done. He was able to do that, Paul tells us then in chapter 3, because he was God manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the gospel. And now Paul's going to show us more ways that this gospel transforms the way we live in our everyday lives. That brings us to the second part of our sentence. What Jesus has done for us, it changes 
First of all, the way we work, he says. Paul says in verse 1, again, reading it, let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now here Paul is addressing bondservants. A bondservant is what we would call today, in our modern English, we would call this person an indentured servant. Right? This is somebody who has willingly entered into a relationship with someone else in which they become that person's servant for an agreed-upon period of time in exchange for payment or compensation of some kind. Now, this kind of servitude, servanthood, it was really common in the ancient world. It's estimated that in the Roman Empire, for example, about one-third of the population, at one time or another, had been an indentured servant. Now, in some translations, though, here's where it gets interesting. Some translations translate this word bondservants, not as bondservants, but as slaves, so some translations say, let slaves be subject to their masters. Now, the reason is for that is because in both the Greek and Hebrew languages, we have two separate words, right? Servants and slaves. They only had one word to describe both what we would call servants and what we would call slaves. Now, again, in our minds as English speakers living today in North America, right, there is a really big difference between being a servant and being a slave. We would say those are two completely different things. Because when we hear the word slavery, of course, we immediately tend to think of the slavery that existed here in the Americas. In our mind, a servant is someone who willingly enters into a contractual agreement, but a slave is someone who is taken and held against their will, right? Kind of a, in a form of oppression and exploitation. So it tends to bother us when we read things like in the Old Testament, that there are laws regarding how people should treat slaves. It tends to bother us when we read here in the New Testament that slaves are to honor their masters, but what makes it worse is that historically in this country, people who did advocate for the African slave trade, they actually used these Bible verses to justify the practice of slavery here in these United States. Now, what you need to understand, though, is that slavery, as the Bible talks about it, was very different than the kind of slavery that existed here in America. That's why most Bible translators have looked at this and they've said, you know, Bond servant would be a better word to use here rather than the word slave because it wasn't slavery in the way that we think about slavery today. For example, let me just give you a quick list. Indentured servitude was not based on race. It was usually entered into contractually. It was usually for a determined period of time. It usually included compensation. And it was empowering, not exploitative. You see, if you were poor and couldn't put food on the table for your family, what a lot of people would do is that they would go to the home of a wealthy person or the business owned by a wealthy person, and they would ask for some kind of agreement in which they would work for that person as their servant and be compensated, kind of like an employee. Or, for example, if you got into debt and you couldn't pay off your debt, you were at risk of going to a debtor's prison. And you, can't, you really can't pay off your debt in debtor's prison. So you would sell yourself into slavery to somebody, to a rich person. And essentially, they would pay off your debt, and then you would work for them until you had worked off what they paid for you. Sometimes, another situation, if someone had committed a crime, as their punishment, rather than just sitting in a jail cell, they would be sold as a servant to work off their debt to society. So 
here's what's even more interesting. The kind of slavery that existed here in the United States, we call it chattel slavery. That kind of slavery where people were kidnapped, sold into slavery, held against their will. Did you know that kind of slavery actually is uh, condemned by the Bible? For example, here in the same book, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul gives a list of really bad sins that people need to repent of and be forgiven by God's grace. And he lists the word enslavers. Some of your translations may list it as man-stealers. Now, what that means, it speaks of that practice of kidnapping someone and either forcing them into slavery against their will or selling them as a slave to someone else. So that's interesting. The Bible does condemn slavery in the way that we often think about slavery as a form of exploitation and oppression. But what's being talked about here in 1 Timothy 6, verse 1 and 2 is indentured servitude, which is a lot more like what you and I would refer to today as employment, having a job, right? And so if you are a person who has a job, if you work for or under someone else, these verses are speaking to you. And here's what he says. If you're a Christian, then what Jesus does for you should change the way you approach your work, your job. Now, how? Why? Well, first of all, it should give you a different perspective on your boss. When you understand that God loves you and that as his child, he's working in your life through his providence in order to shape you into the person he wants you to become. And that as his child, God has called you into the family business of carrying out his work in the world. Well, doesn't that change the way you view your boss and your coworkers? Your boss and your coworkers, these are people who God has brought into your life for a purpose. They will be the ones who second only to your family, will get to see you up close every day, and they will get to see more than anybody else except for your family the difference that Jesus makes in your life. If you're a student, I think this applies to your teachers and your classmates. And one of the best things you can do to help them see Jesus in your life, Paul says, is be a good employee. What Paul's telling us is this. This is really interesting. People will judge Christianity based on how Christians conduct themselves at work. So it's worth asking yourself, do my coworkers know that I'm a Christian? And does my conduct at work actually draw them to Christ? Or does my attitude, my behavior at work, is it perhaps even creating instead barriers that they're going to have to get over in order to come to Christ? You know, in the Greek culture, the prevailing attitude about work was that work was for suckers, right? Like if you could get out of it, you should. And the Greeks, they viewed work as a curse, something that should be avoided, if at all possible. They reflect, they, uh, this was reflected, this attitude about work was reflected in their Greek mythology. You think about the gods, the gods never worked, right? They didn't have jobs, right? So in other words, to live like a god, which was everybody's goal, meant climbing the social ladder until you could get to the point where you didn't have to work anymore and other people worked for you. And they served you and did the stuff for you. But in contrast to that, think about what the Bible shows us. The Bible gives us a different picture of work. The Bible begins with a God who works and he enjoys it. He likes it. The pinnacle of creation even is when God creates a man and a woman. And unlike everything else he created, which he spoke into existence, what does God do when he creates a man and a woman? He puts his fingers in the dirt 
and he shapes them with his own hands. He puts his mouth to their mouth and breathes life into them. And then in the Garden of Eden, remember, in paradise, before sin comes into the world, God gave the man and the woman a job to do, to manage and to cultivate. In other words, according to the Bible, work is not a curse that's to be avoided. Rather, work is part of God's good design for our lives, and it's a way in which he made us to be like him because he's a creator who works. Now, of course, there are ways in which, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, there are ways in which the curse has affected our work and added frustration and complexity to it, which isn't fun. But in general, the Bible tells us that work is a good thing. And as Christians, because of what Jesus has done for us, we now understand that our work isn't just something we do to make money. It's an opportunity to serve God by serving others through the things that we do through our work. It was Christians during the Reformation who began to say, what I do for work, it's not just my occupation, it is my vocation. You know the word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means calling. It's not just what I do for money, it's my calling from God to serve God by serving other people through my job. In other words, Christians would say, whatever my job is at the moment, I understand that it's my calling from God to do that work in a way that honors him, in a way that helps others. So as Christians, what Jesus has done for us absolutely changes the way we work. And Paul gives us this vision. What if, what if every employer in town said, I want to hire Christians. I want to hire Christians because they're the best employees. And what if every workplace was full of Christian employees living out their faith as they did their jobs? How, what, what kind of impact would that have on their coworkers, on their customers? What kind of impact would that have on the world? He goes on to say in verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better because uh, since those who benefit from their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Here Paul shifts to addressing another situation in which you're a Christian and your boss is also a Christian. And you can imagine the scenario. Somebody might say, I want to work for a Christian boss because then he'll take it easy on me. I won't have to work as hard. Or they might say, well, since in Christ we're all equal, well then, if my boss is a Christian, I don't like what he tells me to do. I don't have to do it. Because who's he? He's just the same as me. And Paul's saying, no, listen, if God, God wants you to honor those in positions of authority over you, and rather than taking advantage of a Christian brother or sister, as part of the family of God, you should want to help their business to thrive and succeed by working even better for them. So the gospel changes the way we work. Rather than viewing it as a curse, we view it as a calling. You know what else? The gospel sets us free from another trap in regard to work, and that's the trap of overworking as a way of using your work to prove your worth, your value, your meaningfulness in life. You know, that's a really common trap in our society. Uh, but the message of the gospel is this, that God accepts you not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did. Not because of your work, but because of Jesus' work on your behalf. And as a Christian, your value, your identity, it's not based in what you do or accomplish or achieve but it's in Christ and you are accepted and loved and justified in him. Now you can still do things and you should do things for God and for others, but now you do it for a different reason. You do it out of a thankful heart for what God's done and a desire to bless and serve others just as Jesus has blessed and served you. 
That brings us to the next one. Not only does what Jesus does for us, has done for us, not only does it change the way we work, it also alters our priorities. Look what he says in verses three through five. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Once again, Paul is addressing the false teachers whom Timothy had been sent to Ephesus to deal with. And here Paul talks about, he says, let's talk about what motivates these people to do what they're doing by teaching these false things and doing these unhealthy practices. Again, what they were doing is they were creating factions in the church to draw people after themselves. Now, to do that, right, they would often have some kind of special teaching that nobody else had or, or a special insight that only they had. If you wanted to get it, you had to come to them. And what they were doing is what we would call in our day, we would call this cultish behavior. And what was driving this cultish behavior, Paul says, first of all, was a lack of understanding. He says they don't understand the gospel. And because of that, they major on the minors, if you will. They focus on minor points of doctrine or maybe obscure verses in the Bible, which are not central to the gospel or the Christian faith. And by the way, you know, this, this kind of thing is still quite common even today. I see it all the time. People who want to debate and divide and spend all their time talking about minor points of theology or some obscure, you know, discussion or disagreement or focusing right on some, some obscure verse in the Bible and acting like it's the most important thing. What causes this, Paul says, is a lack of understanding. It happens because people don't understand that the Bible at its core, is a book about Jesus. It's about the, the gospel message is the good news of what he has done to redeem us. And the Bible is the story of that. When you really get that, it changes your priorities. You see, without a clear understanding of the gospel, what these false teachers were motivated by was the desire for their own glory, their own benefit, and their own enrichment. They sought to draw people after themselves by finding obscure or tangential things in the Bible to argue about. Like Paul mentions here, the meaning of certain words. And make them seem, you know, they were trying to make it seem like they were smarter than other people and more spiritual than other people. That they knew things that others didn't know. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees who claimed to be experts in the law. They studied the Bible all the time. They debated about it constantly. But at one point, Jesus said to them, you know, you guys search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But what you fail to realize is that they speak about me. In other words, they were reading the Bible. They knew what the Bible said, but they were focused, so focused on the minor points that they missed the big picture of what it means. And the irony is it's only when you see the big picture that the Bible is a book about Jesus that all the minor points begin to make sense. See, what motivated the Pharisees to study the scriptures was a desire to be holier than thou and smarter than thou. In other words, it was all about their own glory. At the, and the same thing was true of the false teachers here in Ephesus. They weren't actually helping anyone. 
They're just hurting the body of Christ. They're not furthering the mission of God. And what they're doing is they're building factions around themselves. And it was driven by a desire for their own glory and their own enrichment. But something happens when you really understand the gospel that changes everything. You know, Paul, he describes it like this in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. It compels us to do what? To no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sakes died and rose again. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul talks about how when he really understood the gospel, it changed the way he thought about things in his life. He used to be just like those Pharisees and the false teachers in Ephesus, caring only about his own glory, showing off, doing things for his own benefit, for his own gain. But when he came to understand the gospel, he says, you know what? A lot of the things that I used to care so much about, I now consider those things to be rubbish. Now I have new goals, new priorities. In Acts chapter 20, Paul explains his new priorities like this. He says, no longer do I account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Listen, if Jesus really is God come to save us, if heaven and hell are actually real, if salvation is actually possible because of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, that puts a lot of other things into perspective, doesn't it? It alters your priority in many areas of your life, not least of which Paul is going to talk about in this last section, as we get into the last part of our sentence, which is this. Not only does what Jesus has done for us, not only does it change the way we work and alter our priorities, but it also gives us a new perspective on money and material things. He says in verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, in the previous verse, Paul had said to Timothy that the deal with these false teachers, that they considered godliness to be a means of gain, a way of getting wealthy. They thought that if they could gather people to themselves, to their view, their teaching, then it would create a faction, and those people who chose to follow them would then give them their money. In other words, they were being motivated partly by greed. What they thought was that godliness is a way to get rich, right? Teaching about God and stuff, that's a great way to get rich. And Paul says, no, no, no. You know what's great gain? You know what's true wealth is godliness with contentment. You know what it means to be content? It means to be satisfied with what you have rather than constantly seeking for more in order to fill up what is lacking in your soul. The key to contentment is realizing that no amount of things that you can purchase, no amount of experiences or vacations or accomplishments can give you the contentment that your heart longs for, that sense of being fulfilled and finally okay. The only thing that can truly do that for you is a relationship with your Creator. Paul goes on to explain in verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Listen, if material possessions and wealth actually led to happiness, then there would be no depressed people in our society because we live in the richest country in the world. But clearly that's not the case. There are many people who are wealthy but empty, rich but depressed, houses and garages full of stuff but still unfulfilled. You know, Jesus told a story 
in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12 about a man who was smart at business. He worked hard. He planned ahead. And as a result, he was rich. But then one day, like all of us will one day, he died. And even though he was rich and he was good at business, Jesus said that man was a fool. And here's why. Because even though he was smart at business, he laid up treasures for himself here on earth, he was, he was poor towards God. He was smart enough to plan ahead when it came to business, but he was a fool because he didn't plan ahead when it came to his soul. He thought about his material possessions. He thought his material possessions would fill up what was lacking in his soul, but he failed to think about what comes after this life. A truly wise person prepares not just for next year, but prepares for eternity. Because as Paul says here in verses seven and eight, the thing about money, the thing about stuff, you can't take any of it with you when you die. But what you can do is you can use your money and your stuff now in a way that will make an impact for eternity. That's wisdom. So Paul concludes this section by saying, but those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You see, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money. You know, money is a tool. And where it gets twisted in our hearts is when we love money and then we use people or even try to use God to get more money. But when you really understand the gospel, right, the good news that God loves you and that God who was incredibly rich, infinitely rich, he became poor for us by leaving the riches of heaven and becoming one of us in order to live and die and rise again to save us so that through his poverty, we might become rich in the truest sense of the term having an inheritance in heaven, the treasures of a relationship with God here and now. What that causes you to do, that understanding of the gospel, it causes you to love God and then to love people. And then what happens is your love for God and your love for people shapes and drives the way you now use money rather than loving money. What's interesting is that the desires these false teachers in Ephesus had the desire for glory, the desire for riches, the desire to be known and loved, the desire to be full and whole. The irony is they're pursuing all these things in material ways which were detrimental to their own souls and the souls of those who followed them. And yet all of those things that they desired, they are actually found truly in and through Jesus in a way that's actually rewarding and fulfilling and gives life rather than destruction. The message of the gospel is that because of what Jesus did, when you put your trust in him, you receive the true riches that no one can ever take from you. And you get to experience true fulfillment, true love, and the promise of true glory to come. And when you understand that, and not just understand it in your head, but when you embrace it personally, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus and what he did for you, what he did to save you and make you his child, 
You know what it does? It begins a domino effect in your life in which one by one, every area of your life is transformed by this amazing news of what Jesus has done and all of its implications for your life. So I encourage you to embrace Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord and allow the gospel to shape and transform every area of your life. Friends, what Jesus has done for us, it changes the way we work, it alters our priorities, and it gives us a new perspective on money and material things. Let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.